months ago now. So we were in Nashville at the same time for Free Your Future Festival. You've talked to your audience a bit about going to a libertarian conference put on by Students for Liberty, this international students organization. And I, I got to say, I was really impressed by the energy around you being there, not just from fans of your channel and your work, but also just like left libertarians who are part of the movement and they come to these conferences and there's nobody ever speaking to them. There were people there who were just so excited to see you. I feel like what some of the normal Ayn Randian celebrities who might have walked in at any given time, nobody would have even noticed they were there because there were Twitch streamers <laughs> on site. And it was it was exciting. What was your experience like? Was it generally good? Oh, I had a great time. I had exclusively positive experiences with the people there. I didn't know what level of antagonism I'd face because while I do have some ideological overlap with, I guess, American libertarians. There's obviously a lot of differences, too. You know, most of them aren't socialists. Um, I, I, had, I had a wonderful time. I do feel like the left libertarian um, contingent, in especially in the States, is wildly underrepresented, you know. It's like, you're right, it's like mostly Ayn Rand types, which, um, which I think is a bit unfortunate, uh, you know, personal biases aside, uh, because it means a huge chunk of the discourse is being left on the table. But explain to me this. I know you've talked a lot about the idea of libertarian socialism, which is puzzling for people uh, who are traditional right libertarians like myself. Just tell us in your words, what is libertarian socialism? Yeah, well, libertarianism, when it was originally conceptualized, was a socialist ideology. It's just about maximizing individual autonomy, which has two components, really. Uh, one of them is what many right libertarians sort of concern themselves with, which is the limitation of restrictions. How many laws is the government imposing on you? You know, how much tax, that kind of stuff, which is important to mitigate. Um, and then there's the positive liberty that you have, the ability to act on your will. And in our world, uh, unfortunately, you have very little ability to act on your will if you're poor. I don't think right libertarianism meaningfully addresses that. It may give you fewer obstacles on the road to being wealthy, but that's always going to be a bit of a dice roll. Uh, not everyone can live on a yacht. Uh, moving past that, I think you know it's it's about building up the floor so that even if you don't succeed in that respect, there's still a very high standard of living, a great guarantee that you will be able to do the things that you please, as long as you're not hurting people, of course. So who in politics, right, if you ask me to describe right libertarianism, I could point to someone like Rand Paul to give you like a figurehead that more or less represents what I mean. Who would you point to as representative of libertarian socialism? I think it's Noam Chomsky, Presently, right? I mean, well, yeah, Noam Chomsky is absolutely a libertarian socialist. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the man's ancient. Don't think he'll be running anytime soon. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm strapped for options because there are so few socialist-aligned people. I mean, Bernie would be the closest that I'd have to say if we're talking mainstream political figures. But generally, libertarian socialism is a movement which encapsulates anarchism. So anybody who falls under that bracket is probably going to fit the bill. Okay, but here's where I get confused. How can somebody who is anarchist, right, and believes in completely abolishing the state, be under the same coalition as somebody like Bernie that would support having the government take over entire industries and control more than half of the economy in terms of government spending. Like Those two things seem fundamentally incompatible to me, the idea of libertarianism and government control of much of the economy. My opinions on this uh, get a lot of people angry at me, usually anarchists, but um, are, you, are you familiar with the term dictatorship of the proletariat? Explain for the audience what you mean. I think I have an idea, but... 
It's a misnomer in today's terms. When it was formed, dictatorship didn't mean anything negative. It didn't mean authoritarian. It simply meant controlled by. I think the argument a lot of people, myself included, make is that there are a lot of changes that would be necessary to make uh, in any left-leaning system, anarchism, communism, which kind of necessitate a different type of political control, namely control by the working class. And that somebody like Bernie Sanders, while not an anarchist and not an abolitionist of the state, uh, by facilitating something closer to a worker's state, by decreasing the power the bourgeois have over things, they would be nonetheless facilitating the kind of power transition necessary to make those more right. radical changes down the because line. You were talking with David Pakman the other day, and I, I thought you said something that was an easy digest of this, which is that you said the working class as tools of revolutionaries has basically been hundreds of years now of failed socialist experiments. And the idea here with the libertarian socialist model is, of course, that you actually have a working class led movement to change systems, to, you know, put in new regimes where elites and revolutionaries are used as tools of the working class. But it just really never seems to me that there's a way to do that. Right. Uh, you so, know, so how does one control, ha have the working class control things without doing it through the state and the government? Well, um, there were worker councils, which were very popular and necessary to um, the Red Army prior to the Soviet Revolution. Lenin disbanded them after he won, of course. He did a lot of bad things. Uh, disbanded the, I, is a I nice word for, for killed or exiled. That's a <laughs> right? very nice word. Yes. Uh, and, he, you know, he did quite a bit worse, too. He betrayed the anarchists. He had them shot in the back of the head at the war council. It, it was, yeah, um, not a big fan of the guy. Um, with regards to like better ways of handling things, I think so often, you know, revolutions are theoretically defensible. I support the American revolution after all, but uh, so often the cart is put before the horse when it comes to the proper organization of things. Russia was never meaningfully capable of worker control because when the revolution took place, you know, the population was futile. It was barely literate. The idea that such a population could meaningfully control the organization of government without party leadership and proxies was, you know, fantastical. In the modern day, where literacy rates, at least in the West, are incredibly high, I think it's possible to facilitate a much more reasonable shift in power uh, because we have access to the kind of, what would you call it, a, a civic society mm -hmm. where it would be more difficult for demagogues to take control of any working class movement Ideally, can obviously, you point to somewhere in the really world wrong. where something like you're describing exists that you could use as a model? Uh, well, I think Rojava, in spite of the horrific conditions from which it was born, you know, in, in, in Syria, um, has done a pretty remarkable job applying some of the anarchist principles that I value into action with regards to, and, and I mean, they were working with a way worse template than us, you know, in terms of infrastructure and social development. Uh, in terms of like modernized systems, you know, in, in, the, in the context of a state, I don't think there really is one for the main reason that a lot of these transitions are really unfavorable to the ruling class globally. Uh, and if such a change were to come about, it would have to come about in times of great destabilization or it would have to, you know, sort of like a, a, a big paradigm shift globally. It can't really happen piecemeal. Well, we are absolutely like in a period of a lot of things coming apart, change, turmoil, people feeling like the ground is moving too fast underneath them. And as a result, we are seeing 
I, I think populism is a, a nice word to say, but like we are seeing incredibly extremist political movements form off to the left and the right. I imagine you're excited about the energy on the left generally, uh, but there's always going to be a mirror image to that, uh, which would be uh, those darned fascists. And they are real. And I, I guess my my thing for you is like, how do you how do you sort of calm the waters here and instill sort of a new sort of civic democracy in the United States? absent revolutionary change like it's it's such a big lofty almost impossible goal can't you just do things within the system that make things work because what you're always talking about is like factions will eventually strike bad bargains with one another that's what you're describing in lenin's russia you try to work together you think you have shared goals but then eventually one will always knife the other in the back I think that there are simple things that you can do to try to restore the equilibrium in our own country. I'm a proponent of universal basic income as a way to move towards more of a socialized economy, but do it through the fruits of capitalism and free markets. Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, well, I agree with you. There are positive changes that can be made, um, but I think you're swimming uphill past a point. You know, all the things you and I value politically are probably theoretically achievable under a constitutional monarchy, maybe even an absolute dictatorship. It's not impossible to have UBI, you know, like uh, councils, uh, this, that, and the other, you know, economic and civil liberties. You can have all those things. It's just they're not uh, conducive to the political situation that those types of governments tend to create. And likewise, I think bourgeois government government tends to facilitate uh, naturally political and social situations which require tremendous economic inequality. Um, is it theoretically possible to achieve all of these things under the system that we live today? Possibly, I guess, but I would bet as much for that as I would, you know, a, a pharaoh uh, instituting, you know, a fair tax unions uh, and civil liberties. But it how seems to be antithetical. How can you have a big government that doesn't become what you're describing? Because it seems to me anytime you have centralized power, right, absolute power corrupts absolutely, it will then be wielded at the behest of lobbyists and wealthy constituents and donors and people with the means. To me, the answer then is decentralization, free markets, extremely limited government. But if you're talking about different forms of collective control or collectivism, how are they not going to fall victim to the exact same forces? There's always going to be an elite and a powerful. Why wouldn't your form of collectivism still fall victim to those influences? Well, I don't disagree at all. But decentralization does not necessarily mean free market, after all. I'm a big advocate for worker cooperatives or any kind of decentralized, non-government-owned manner by which the workers can directly control the places they work. Uh, that would, at least in my opinion, be a, a boon both to civil liberties and to sort of uh, decentralized advocacy. And there are ways to have government control without it being centralized, after all. Uh, it's possible to have government-funded, decommodified institutions that are not directly beholden to political interests. Can For you, example, you, like, to, uh, you know, the post Add like a, a layer of specificity here, because with like worker co-ops, this, this comes up a lot. And mm -hmm. I, I still can never picture like what these things actually look like. I, I in my time in, in college, I played in a bunch of punk bands, and almost every show would be at like a cooperative grocery store's uh -huh. back room 
or a cooperative bookstore's backroom. And all of those cooperatives were eventually shuttered within like a year. It was always like trying to find where the next co-op would pop up so that you could host your shows there at night. And I think for me, that was my only experience ever was that you always saw these places with their almost bare shelves. They close after a year because nobody wants to run these places effectively. And so my impression of co-ops have just always been these places that have uh, for rent signs on the on the front window. How does it work? I can't speak to that specifically, but the data on worker cooperatives is pretty promising. Uh, well, I mean, essentially what you have is the simplest form is you have a traditional managerial structure, except the people underneath the manager get to vote in the person who's currently in charge, which I think solves a lot of problems. Nobody really likes their boss, after all. The idea is that there would be a baseline level of civic participation in the workplace. We're not talking a meeting every day, just, you know five minutes you get caught up on how things are going and that you would vote uh, on who that manager is. And if the manager is poorly representing you, you could replace them. The data we have in worker cooperatives, I think, is pretty promising in terms of um, resistance to price shocks, likelihood of staying open and worker happiness, which massively increases when people have a sense of control over things and real control. I mean, there are a lot of workplace rules that are arbitrary and cruel in the United States, like uh, grocery store workers can't sit, for example, often at the uh, um, at the checkout, which is horrible for older people or people with disabilities. Uh, these rules are, I think some middle manager just said it would increase productivity by a tenth of 1%. They've just rolled with it globally since. But stuff like that, little changes like that, I think massively increase the Why happiness of people. Why can't a co-op like there. that exist in a free market as is, as we have it, as we have it now in many, in many industries? We have a lot of not free markets. But I'm saying, like, why does that require something different than a free market system? Oh, no, they can. They absolutely can. Uh, and when we're talking about, uh, you know, the implementation of these co-ops, a lot of the work that needs to be done, if you value them, which I do, is just social, prioritizing them, normalizing them. There are also some tax codes concerning co-ops that are a little bit funky yeah. in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's not as easy or convenient as with traditional, you know, LLCs or other businesses. But if you iron that stuff out, I think the, the groundwork is essentially laid. But there's a critical difference between having the ability to have worker cooperatives and having enough of them that you meaningfully challenge traditional bourgeois economic control. And that's a, like a pretty huge tipping point. And I think that tipping point is where the difficulty comes in because there's no reason why they would ever want that to happen. They could organize protests, campaigns, political action against cooperatives. There's many number of propaganda points you could But if they're, if they're great, right? If they're them. the great place to work, if they succeed, they stay open and they thrive. I mean, that's what free markets are all about. When they're not monopolized and there's no government on the scale, they'd win out in a competition. More workers would want to go there. More people would want to patronize. They would multiply and, and populate. So, so I'm not sure I see what the issue is, unless, of course, you have uh, other interests that come in and use the government you know, to shut I, them down. I feel down. like we see like the, the ethic of the worker cooperative idea sort of seeping into elite institutions, like particularly like in journalism, where you sort of see these constant revolts at tech companies and at the New York Times or Washington Post by like entry level staffers and people who have just been hired who want everything to be democratized and to break down like the managing editor roles and have the executive editors of papers answer to the people who do social media copy and all this stuff. And it just it just causes total chaos because you can't actually get business done and create value for your customers when your primary right. concern is always the the feelings of every single employee. 
I think there's some variance to that. Um, the you could argue worker cooperatives are less advantageous to the employee, but that's sort of a every man's the case until you're that uh, employee situation. You know, it's kind of the same with worker rights. You know, uh, maybe service would be better at a place where they're not allowed lunch breaks and they get fired at any one infraction. But I would rather work at places where even if it means I have to wait a smidge longer, I know the workers are being treated well because I mean eventually. If that rule is applied to everyone, everyone gets treated better. I th think the history of, you know, workplace accommodations in the United States is a history of racing to the bottom. Uh, while it is true that cooperatives tend to do quite well, there is going to be a home field advantage to the trillions of dollars already existing in uh, corporations that are capable of fielding investment through private entrepreneurship and through, uh, you know, um, it, the, uh, you know, leveraging their worth on the stock market. These are institutions that have every possible pre-existing advantage, some of them quite a bit more powerful on their own politically and economically than your average, you know, Eastern European state. So given that that advantage, uh, it's entirely possible that there are externalities we're not accounting for, which uh, might not even take the field when traditional businesses, you know, uh, take to hold. For example, nothing in the free market mandates good treatment of your workers. We see that all over the world. Uh, it's political pressure which does that, which we use the state to mandate. But outside of that, the workers that are treated the worst usually extol the most profits for their owner. And that's obviously not a race to the bottom we want to participate in. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I'm going to put a pin in it here real quick and we can get right back to it. Want to pause and say hello 20 minutes late to everyone watching or listening. We normally do this in the first five minutes. Say hi. Thanks for watching the show. <laughs> we'll do it now. I'm Stephen. This is right now on the Rightly channel. And I've got here my friend Brad Palumbo, free market evangelical and contributor to right now, and joining us from somewhere in real America, we've got Vosh. A quick reminder, if you haven't done so already, give us a like and subscribe. We have new episodes every Thursday and bonus content throughout the week. So leave us a comment, let us know what you think. I almost always respond and write back, and we'll be pals whether or not you say nice things or not, and it'll all be great. So back to what we were talking about here. Brad, did you want to dig in on that, that you kind of don't buy yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we don't have to get hung up on it, but I'm just saying, look at the economic freedom indexes of the world, right? And look at the freer economies that are less regulated, less taxed, and look at the list of countries at the top of that list. Look at the quality of a worker's life and average income and working conditions in those countries, and then go down that list and look. So I don't buy the notion that free market capitalism is bad for workers. I mean, free, free market capitalism and global trade is responsible for massive reductions in, in absolute poverty across the last 30 years, massive decreases in child mortality, Competi competitive markets give workers options. The but problem I, is when I we have monopoly. I don't think, and, and this is this is me trying to interpret like as most charitably what Vash has been saying here is I don't think that he's critiquing this as like the ultimate evil of all time. I think that what you're describing, free markets and capitalism, all that great stuff, give us the most opportunity and space for everybody to try and carve out the, the kind of lives and communities that they would like to have. However, I think the thing that drives me away from the capitalist mindset as well 
is that meaning, purpose, happiness, um, that you're actually living a good and fulfilling life is just purely going to come from being employed and the GDP of a country and all that kind of stuff. Like there's got to be something. But is that really? I don't think that's ever really been the libertarian or capitalist ethos. At least not. I think we get sucked principle. into it a little bit too giddily. But I rightly understood so the say, idea. Oh sure, you know, go ahead. Oh no, no. I just, I just want to say, you know, the the 18th century, more or less, I'm simplifying, gave way to the concept of nation states. What was before empires. Uh, you know, disparate tribal communities, the idea of borders, of leaders, of nations came about. And initially, these nations were overwhelmingly not democratic. But the period following the nationalization of the world uh, was one which did reduce significantly danger in quite a few places. Uh, it did consolidate kingdoms. It did call out borders. It did you know, dissuade tribal rivalries. It was a period of improvement in many respects, in some ways negative, but I think it, nothing else, it was a stabilizing force. And I think in many ways, we're seeing something similar from capitalism. Capitalism, it's true, under capitalism, extraordinary global progress has been made. It would be ridiculous to deny that. But we have to see, has the system done everything it could, or are there ways to improve it? In the case of the nation states, the critical improvement was democracy. And I think with our economy, the answer must necessarily be the same. You have the base economic benefits of a modern, democratic, technologically advanced economy. But what can you do if you make it meaningfully accountable to the people, not to some, you know, elite group of tech oligarchs, people with old money, people who lucked into it? And some people, don't get me wrong, who worked really hard. Bezos worked really hard. Um, but I didn't elect them. And they still have more power than quite a few political leaders in this country. That's sort of the economic form of a warlord somebody who's capable of, without any kind of democratic mandate, seizing enormous personal power. Uh, and while that might be better to living in the wastes, uh, I think we can improve on that. I think it's possible. The other day in your, your conversation with Pacman, you were talking about the, the socialist movement in the United States, kind of what the DSA is for and all that kind of stuff. And you mentioned that you thought the primary function of the socialist movement in the United States was to stop, confront, minimize fascism. Could you unpack that? Yeah, I think um, there's a very liberal mindset, this it couldn't happen here, which really bothers me. It's ahistorical. Um, you know, the Weimar Republic before Nazi Germany took over was a relatively progressive and well-to-do place, Great Depression aside. Um, and fascism, as we understand it, is very ideologically idiosyncratic. We don't think of it as something fundamentally American, but the Nazis had many American supporters before the war, uh, and they took their ideas and eugenics from our researchers and scientists. Uh, I think the roots of American fascism have been here for a while. You've seen it rear its ugly head before World War II, afterwards with McCarthyism. Will you define um, fascism? Right now. Uh, sure. Uh, the the simplest definition, I think, is, um, what is it, uh, palingenetic ultranationalism, the idea of, like, the nation will be reborn. Okay. You know, there's, there's this, tr you know, yeah, yeah, like, you know, a phoenix. Um, but I think there are a lot of really complicated social forces uh, behind it, you know, like, what tendencies? Misogyny tends to be a big part of it, ethno-nationalism. It's dangerous. And I think it's rearing its head as populism do, becomes do more powerful. Do you think that the left, and and yourself included, play a role 
in being hyper-focused on these grand narratives of history, you know, this sort of historical struggle between fascism, communism, you know, these two left-right poles. I think these different warriors who end up falling into one of, one of either camp, because they're both the most appealing. They give you this grand sense of purpose, this grand sense of struggle, and being part of these movements that are going to change the world. Either take us back to the past, you know, the, the eagle born from the ashes, the phoenix born from the ashes, or a utopian future. I think that the left does way too much work for the far right to try to push people into that corner by throwing the word fascist around callously, to call people white supremacists, to call this person and that person and that person a Nazi because they step slightly out of line on identity issues or, or politically correct kind of talk, right? Like Tumblr, Tumblr liberalism. I, I really worry about your role and the role of the far left in perpetuating this divide and the rearing of the head of fascism. Uh, it's possible, though I do wonder what it says about people who move towards fascism because they feel the left was overeager. Because they're in their nasty to them. They're because the left oh, is like, sure, like they go to the people to with fascism? the open arms. You know this. I mean, come on, people with the open arms versus the people who are just trying to like make your life miserable online and uh, and slander you. Like you're going to go closer, even if you don't even mean to. Towards but the also, how do we know who the real fascists are? If you call everyone a fascist, they might not know they're going into the arms of a fascist commentator or authoritarian because the left has called everybody that. I mean, then they no longer, it, it's like the boy who cried wolf syndrome, right? When we actually have racists and, and we do have some crazy racist people on the far right that are gaining prominence. Um, and some of them are authoritarian or theocratic. They or really all of hate, this. they really hate this show. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. But my whole point is that when you throw that label around, like it's candy on Halloween, you weaken it. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say to I think that, you know, being moved towards fascism because of the behavior of the left denotes a kind of susceptibility, if nothing else, which is worthy of concern outside the broader behavior of the left. There is a historical tendency, I think, for the left to overfixate on the grand narrative and to overuse these terms. But, you know, with 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 the, the you know, caution of sounding like one of these people, I do feel like, if anything, the term fascism is underused. Uh, I think that w what we have right now in this country is a situation where the Republican Party is essentially just the fascist party, uh, in not in, um, in in evoked policy because we have a democratic country, but rather in their aims, their efforts, their goals. I, I think, think you could say that of the MAGA the of the MAGA norms. movement. I think you yeah, could say so that of the MAGA I, movement. Yeah, it's our it's our institutions, right? I mean, in a weaker country. Uh, Donald Trump uh, with the election business or January 6th, that could have been it. A country without very strong democratic institutions, that might have been it right there. You know, there could he could have, you know, foisted power within the military. There could have been a coup, six months of media blackout, and then we could have been, you know, living in Magaland forever. Um, now, it didn't happen here, and that's a good thing. We should recognize that America's institutions and their strength is what shields us for a time, but only for a time. I, I do want to go bit, back, though. In the same and way... I want to push. Okay. I want to. I just. I want to push on on the the idea that you know if there's something like you, you you push towards fascism because leftists are mean to you that there's like something wrong with you. I think that there. I think that it's just sort of a a fact that 
everyone has like latent totalitarianism just beneath the surface with themselves. Buried in underneath all of us is the desire to control things, to, to the desire to not live in a chaotic world. Maybe you're an exception to that, and there are like rare exceptions to this, this instinct. But most people want things to be ordered, and they're going to move towards the people who offer order in some way, shape, or form. I believe that arc about history, and I think it's just... I don't know. I think it's just sort of pie-in-the-sky thinking to be like, yes, we can be awful, mean to people online. We can move the goalposts every year on the words and the pronouns that people use to talk to each other and then be surprised when they start playing footsie with people who they shouldn't be playing footsie with on the far right who are saying, we're going to stop these crazy And it's not even just that. It's also cancel people, get them fired from their jobs, you know, harass people, show up at their houses docs jk rowling like it's not just changing norms about pronouns and everything it's it's about the the vicious backlash a lot of people face and i i don't i think it's perfectly natural to go into the opposite arms of people i want to caution some of this because i i genuinely believe the behaviors you're describing right now are almost universal whether we're talking about doxing or harassment canceling people harassing people online these are absolutely not trademarked the left I think these are ubiquitous behaviors. I think the issue is that fascism is easier to fall in because it requires zero ideological discipline. All you really need is a fundamental belief there's something wrong with society as a product of weakness and degeneracy. Uh, you need to have a strong attachment to something iconographic, whether it's the white race, America, you know, something to rally that attitude towards. Um, and then the political prescriptions follow from that. I think being on the left requires a bit more thought. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's a bit of an uphill struggle because I swear to God, you go online and it's like, um, you know, hey, join the left or the right, random 14-year-old white boy, mm -hmm. you know? If you join the left, okay, here's your dictionary on, like, all the problematic stuff you like, and here's all the info on how to interact with people who are of different races or ethnicities. And then if, if you go over on the, on the right, you know, it's like, they ask nothing of you. Uh, we can say the N-word here, or maybe not, you know, it depends. Uh, uh, no, I, I don't uh, think uh, you can in almost any spaces uh, wait, on sorry, the right. When, when I'm saying... When I'm thinking on the right, I'm thinking 4chan. My bad. I should be more specific. When, when we're talking like like in the more like fascist spaces on the internet, at least, they ask very little of you. Just come over here, be funny, be edgy. And the political prescriptions flow naturally uh, from the contempt that we express through, through, through humor at these groups. And that's a tough battle to win because they have, you know— there's a very low bar to entry. So I think, I think, I think the, what you're saying victory, is correct. Oh, sorry, sorry. I think what you're saying is correct. Um, you know, the idea that fascism is more of this sort of ethic, this sort of way of being where communism is, is very specific about the things that you're going to adhere to. Like you can just go like, go on the internet right now, like search for like communist, fascist, like Venn diagram. And I think it is absolutely true that fascism just takes multiple different forms and communism requires very specific ideological prescriptions about policy. And fascism is more about, you know, reclaiming the past. It's about usually uh, gender roles or masculinity, stuff like that. It just presents itself in a certain way. Um, however, something that is way more specific than fascism is, fascism is sort of this attitude, white supremacy. You have called our friend, Gothics, a white supremacist, uh, and, you know, I, I guess that by extension means a Nazi. How on earth does that make sense? How is that constructive to call black creators who just don't agree with you on identity politics stuff white supremacists? Because 
I mean, my oh. my brother was an anarcho punk for several years. He would call me a fascist all the time because I voted for Mitt Romney and whatever. Fine, I, I'll I'll take it. But you can't just call people Nazis. Like that just does not seem to be a good way to do discourse, and it really waters down the problem because I I think it's a problem, and I worry about it a lot that it's going to rear its head in a big big way in the future again. But how are you not like making this problem worse by doing that? Well, first of all, I don't think white supremacists and Nazi are equivalent at all. There's a lot more that goes into being a Nazi. Uh, but if if you're just to take the the white supremacist angle first. I'll absolutely call people of color white supremacists. You know, I'm very equal opportunity in that respect. I think um, the the idea that your behavior or your attitudes engender a sort of social, um, you know, uh, you know, making advantage for white people. I don't. I don't think that's a racial lines thing. Honestly, I've talked to quite a few people of color who I would describe as white supremacists, and God bless them. With Gothic specifically, I think it was. Um, because they think they can, with like they all can lives. do things themselves without the help of white, they, white saviors. Like, they, no, it's, don't you? You don't find it ironic no, to they, be labeling as a white dude a black person a white supremacist because they disagree with you on racial issues. Wait, do you do you do you guys think that you couldn't call a person of color a white supremacist? Like, can't people of color also believe the same? Things I think that in white, like white in the most absolute believe? extreme, like a black clans member, you could call a white supremacist. But I think the bar has to be, I mean, I get this. People tell me I'm a self-hating homophobic gay, right? But the bar for you to say to a black person that they actually think they're inferior and that their family is inferior to white people and that they have sold their soul to the devil, basically, to peddle talking points, that takes some gall to accuse of another person uh, and I feel like the bar for saying that should be extremely high. And it seems like it's just become, well, you disagree with the left on some cultural or race issues. And that's all it takes. It depends on how you disagree on the race issues, for sure. Uh, for me, the bar is exactly the same. I think that if, you know, your political prescriptions or your, you know, beliefs socially align with white supremacy, that regardless of what creed or race or color you are, I think it's a fair prescription to make. Now, you and I would, you two and I, sorry, would probably disagree on where the bar should be with regards to white supremacy. Uh, I think it broadly encapsulates uh, a lot of social tendencies as well. It wouldn't necessarily require specifically believing the inferiority of non-white people. Um, but I think in, in, in regards to the gothics, I think it's it kind of definition matter related. Yeah, discourse. only only acad like only academically minded people and very online people believe that everybody. Well, can I say why? Sure. The, re the reason why is because we've artificially placed these bars in a place where we are only looking at the absolute most explicit behavior, you know. So what we've done and, you know, uh, what was it? Lee Atwater talked about this, the Southern strategy it used to be racist would say N word, N word, N word, you know, come the 1960s, mm -hmm. you can't do that anymore. So instead, they talk about forced busting and segregation. Well, it's, it's about the codification of white supremacy into more normalized language. So nowadays, you know, when the MAGA types are talking about Black Lives Matter invading the suburbs. They can't say race war, but that's the that's the 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 tone is meant to evoke essentially the same political response. It couldn't have anything to do with riots stuff. that literally people died and stores were destroyed and looted and vandalized in the name of Black Lives Matter. It couldn't have anything to do with that. Well, all civil rights protests lead to some degree of social unrest, sir. I think BLM was generally quite peaceful. But the issue there is the suburbs. That's the weird thing to me. Because BLM didn't do anything to the suburbs. You're not, no, Most you're right. Most protests are held. 
Well, most protests are held in cities. They're usually when there's damage, it's done in inner city areas. That's, I mean, you know, there's just more people there, wider boulevards. The suburbs, along with other language used, encodes a kind of racial uh, terminology, which I think is meant to sort of passively imply uh, at least the kind of social, um, what did you say? I, I think it suggests something. Now, obviously, I'm discussing very abstract language here, but there is a push in this country for white supremacists to not mean anything outside of like Klan members, people saying the N-word, and like skinheads in prison. And I think that's a little bit unfortunate because the real damage done through white supremacy is not Klan members or skinheads in prison. It's, you know, people in suits who go to D.C., who dress their language up properly, who never talk about race directly, but only talk about it through abstracted euphemisms that they then use to do systemically infinitely more damage than you could ever do by being some random Klansman or a lyncher somewhere in Alabama. So why couldn't uh, they just be it's wrong? It's important to keep an eye out for that. Why can't you disagree with somebody and just say they're wrong and here's why instead of throwing labels on them that are ultimately meant to discredit? I mean, when you call somebody a white supremacist, you're saying this person is evil. You're saying their views are illegitimate. Right, you're saying they're motivated by animus and hatred. And pub most public policy issues, and I bet you would agree on this in a different context, are complicated. And people of good faith can land on either side. So the same way that like, I don't like when people on the right shut down a Democrat and say they just hate America, or you know, they're just a communist. Right? It's a way of delegitimizing the other side when you really, I think, should be willing to just say that they're wrong and here's why. The issue is that historically in America, hating America has never really been like a big policy thrust. It's never been a big motivating force. Neither is communism. Racism, however, has centuries of very explicit policy and social force moving it. Communists don't tend to dog whistle, you know. If you disagreed with me, you could fairly call me a commie, socialist, anarchist. It's a label that you could fairly apply. But there is ambiguity to those labels, too. When it comes to something like white supremacy, I'm only trying to put name to a set of policies and beliefs that I think are destructive. Now, you say it's discrediting. I agree with that. And if people disagree with me, I also tend to think it's discrediting. I, I agree with my opinions, of course. I mean, I think we all do. Um, but I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with impugning that or codifying that. You, you, you wouldn't mind if I just called you, just you a white supremacist if you disagree with me about things. Just casually throw out. Or you're you, homophobic, actually, because we disagree about taxes. If you can make an argument that... If you, could, if you could make an argument that a disagreement between you and I was uh, that my position was harmful uh, to, you know, non-white people or to gay people in, in some meaningful way, then I would accept. I might disagree with that prescription, but I would accept the that's logic just, of you calling me just, that. That's just wrong. I mean, you can't win over people's hearts and minds when you put them into this box of trying to trying to predict and prescribe what their intentions are by supporting a certain policy. I mean, this is oh, the whole, this not is the intentions. Whole, right. Not intentions, intentions, no. intentions uh, well, versus I, what you want to see happen in society versus what does happen. Like the idea that white supremacy is, is structural, like it, it just allows you to do whatever you want in the discourse. Just label your opponents as illegitimate. And it, and it, I think you can make fair arguments for these things, right? As, as this is, I just, I just want to say, because uh, we have fundamental disagreements and that's perfectly fine, but I, I do protest the idea that these accusations are spurious. We can disagree, as you've said, but I don't think it's about randomly labeling people, though some people on the left certainly do. I mean, people on the right are calling everyone a commie or hating America, and I agree. I think that's also destructive. But if you can make a good argument, I think there is descriptive utility to these terms outside of intent that 
you know, maybe your behavior is in line with something. But to me, it's non-essentialist. I just want to make that clear. If a person, there are people in my community who were Nazis two years ago, actual, honest to God. Mm -hmm. I've had, I've heard people, they've got their tattoo removal. I don't assign moral worth to who you were, only who you are. If a person's beliefs are bad, or I would codify them as white supremacy, to me, that's an ascription to a historical trend, not a condemnation of intent. It can be unintentional. Lord knows I've had problematic beliefs since starting streaming that I would call in line with white supremacy. That might be a really low bar, and I totally understand that. I wouldn't use that language if I was a politician, but it's not just a, 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 a petty mudslinging effort. I, I do try to be consistent with the application of these labels, even if you think they're you know done to frivolous. That might be how you personally think of it, but that's not the meaning that label has when you throw it around in our society. It's not at all. I'm always afraid to talk about it. I, I've tried to talk with gothics, by the way. She doesn't, I try to meet her for your future fest. If she doesn't want to talk to me, that's fine. You don't have to. Um, but I'm always down to talk about that. It could be that accusation was totally unwarranted, but well, I, I, I won't know until I talk with her, I guess. I, pre I appreciate you being willing to talk about it. You know, my, my concern just to kind of round us down here is that it does not seem like a coincidence to me that the same period we have seen of, I think, the, the far right swelling in size and intensity, particularly online and then bursting out of the real world, is also happening at the same time. There's just been this incredible liberalization and panic over the idea that these people exist. It pushes people who are otherwise fence-sitters, who I think do not want to be involved in these movements, to feel like they have no other fighter in these grand narratives between the left and the right. And then they end up slipping right into whoever's going to be uh, open arms to them and treat them with some dignity and respect. I think that this strategy is backfiring, and I don't think the left is going to admit it until it's too late, and I just really want to see it stop. But on that note, let's uh, let's head out because, Vash, I, I had an impression of you coming into this conversation and kind of like going through your channel, past couple of months since we met in Nashville, that you kind of like I, I view most far kind of far left uh, creators as being a little bit nihilistic about the future, uh, a little bit cynical about politics. And I actually find that that's not always the case with you on your channel. And you did a video about a week ago uh, pinpointing 10 things that you're happy about and excited about that's the future. Right. Uh, a little bit of a little bit of hopium. Uh, which is apparently controversial, the Pepe the Frog. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to share something that you are hopeful about uh, with the future and something that actually has you optimistic. I'll start, uh, if we may. I saw a piece in Al Jazeera actually this morning showing that they are now making a breakthrough to offer blood tests for people with different forms of mood disorders. So they're going to be able to, with RNA markers in people's blood, be able to distinguish whether or not a person really has bipolar or if they're dealing with a more temporary form of depression or if they have something else in that category of mood disorders. Because right now- With the Bill Gates chip. Right, yeah, I mean, right, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. right now, right now, I really hate the way it's done. It's all head shrinking. It's all just doctors giving you a, a one-size-fits-all pill when they, they check the box that you've been feeling sad. Uh, and I, I really don't, uh, I don't trust it and I think it's been bad for society. So if they can actually to make a big breakthrough on this to test different kinds of mood disorders i'd be very optimistic about the future uh, oh uh yeah i'll sure i'll go next um i th first of all i think that's lovely 
Um, I, I actually suffer from bipolar depression myself, and it was only through the big brain psychiatric evaluation that I was able to per correctly diagnose that. Being able to do so, um, you know, through through blood testing sounds incredible. I think there's a lot of really encouraging medical stuff on the way. I did talk about this in the video, but like, for example, Alzheimer's research, uh, the potential for developing some kind of um, meaningful treatment towards it or even a vaccine. But I think I think I'll say... Um, I'll say something that I'll clarify why. I think um, it's it's probably the rate of acceptance of trans people in the United States. Um, how how rapidly it's grown in the past ten years. You know, it's gone from like the fifteen to like sixty percent or something like that. And you know, it's trans people are a minority in the population. It's not necessarily about that, but I think there's a broader willingness in the modern world to accept what we would consider divergent behavior, just anything outside of the norm, um, which I think broadly encompasses a lot of stuff. Uh, I think that's really, really, really helpful, um, not just for trans people, but because you never know what the next issue is going to be. There are lots of adjacent issues as well that I feel could be improved through, through proxy. Like, uh, for example, like child trafficking is adjacent to a lot of stuff concerning like the uh social attitudes towards mm -hmm. parental abuse or sex work there, there's like it's like a huge umbrella of issues but i think as a society we're getting quicker at finding the beat on on problems like this and i think that's really good brad well a statistic i read that actually surprised me is i think we all agree climate change is a is a very real issue uh that we need to do something about but actually when you take a, zoom out a little, things are not as bad as you might think. Doom scrolling through TikTok or listening to Greta, the the number of climate related deaths and like extreme heat, droughts, uh, natural disasters has actually decreased almost ninety nine percent since nineteen twenty. So, I, I guess that heartened me a little bit just to take a little bit of the panic off of the discourse on that issue. Not that it's not still important. But just that we're not all going to die in, in seven years. I like the sound of that. <laughs> all right. That's it for this episode of Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. Thank you again to Vosh for joining us. And if you're watching this right now, subscribe to the channel. What the heck are you waiting for? We had Vosh on today. We had Dylan Burns a few weeks ago, Ariel Scarcella, Gothics, Rand Paul, Nick Gillespie, and even the guy who played Jacob from Lost. So you're missing out if you're not subbed. We're also on TikTok because I hear Gen Z consumer preferences matter or something like that. Oh, and by the way, Thank you to everyone who picked up my new book, my first book, How the Force Can Fix the World. It hit number one on Amazon's Marketplace for Political History eBooks and is nearly in the top 20 for hardcover political books. And I am freaking astounded, grateful, and excited about how many people are out there enjoying my little love letter to the politics of Star Wars. So if you have a copy, it makes a great gift uh, for Christmas. Or if you don't, you need to go get one. And that is going to be it for today. As always, keep asking why. Yeah, thank you. And I really appreciate it. It's been an exciting, exciting month, man. But uh, yeah, as always, keep asking why, stay out of line, and be a bug in the system. Have a great week, folks.